Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. This week, we're going to largely devote to the eagerly anticipated October 22nd Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee meeting on coronavirus vaccine development and approval issues. And we've got nearly all of the Pink Sheet reporters who cover the meeting, the very, very long meeting. The YouTube stream clocked in at more than eight and a half hours, and there was a lot of information packed into that time, in addition to the committee discussion. So where do we want to start with takeaways on this one? Um, I think we knew that there was going to be a lot of background discussion, and there was at the beginning, um, but there was also some interesting comments uh, for, from the committee for the FDA to consider. Um, Sue, you wrote the main bar uh, for us for the meeting. What, what stood out to you? So um, the first question FDA asked the committee was for input on the two guidances that it is issued to industry, the June guidance on uh, COVID vaccine licensure requirements, and then the most recent October controversial guidance on EUA uh, authorization requirements. And so the, the uh, agency wanted to get the committee's sense of, of what they thought worked well in those guidances and what did not. And the, the committee definitely had some criticisms around the FCM points and the 50% efficacy threshold that FDA set originally back in June, uh, with some members thinking 50% uh, for everything is not such a good idea. They were critical of the idea of using an endpoint with symptomatic disease. They didn't think that was the most important thing to be assessing. They thought, some thought that they should have really gone after severe disease. Although one FDA official did note that if they went after severe disease as the primary endpoint, the studies would have to be 10 times larger and would be completely infeasible. Um, on the other side of the docket though, the committee, um, did not think that FDA's recommendation for two months of median safety follow-up was too much. In fact, just the opposite. They thought in some cases that might not be enough, not only for uh, safety follow-up, but also for efficacy follow-up because they noted that it's unclear when uh, the immunity might wane with these vaccines. And they thought that it was important to track. And of course, the two-month safety follow-up recommendation was what came under uh, such dispute between the agency and the White House, the White House thinking it was going to prolong um, the studies too long and delay authorization of a vaccine beyond Election Day. Yeah, I guess I was a little taken by their... Um the 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 fact that the committee didn't like the two months of follow-up either um and, and you know obviously th this goes back to the uh the traditional route has always been i believe they said was six months of follow-up so you know you're you're trying to determine if you know you're trying to determine what adverse events pop up in the you know after in the in the days after the last injection but you know, I think the FDA has consistently said that usually we can, we can detect most of them within six weeks. So that's why we went with two months. But 
you know, I think there were several committee members who were saying that, you know, they, they were worried that they were, we were going to, the FDA was going to miss things. I think even after the initial six, six week period that they didn't think, you know, that they thought might be, you know, should be detected. Well, I think yeah, one thing I was, one I thing was I thought, struck by, by how much um, FDA kept going back to this idea of, of balancing and, you know, balancing the needs to address the pandemic as quickly as possible with the needs to get enough safety and efficacy data to make people comfortable taking a vaccine. And sort of that's where some of that two months and that 50% um, efficacy threshold came into play. I thought that the one interesting point a couple of people made is um, they were saying that, um, you know, in generally you would pick up on most adverse events within six weeks, but people were pointing out we're dealing with two new vaccine technologies here and perhaps we can't make the assumption that we know um, the time frame for when we pick up on adverse events. So I thought that was interesting, but I do agree with Sue that FDA is trying to kind of strike a balance of figuring out some way to let things move faster with the pandemic while also not doing too much to compromise safety. Yeah, that whole, uh, you know, speed versus certainty uh, trade-off, uh, you know, you'll see us for kind of in every uh, um, development program, not just in the, uh, um, the, the pandemic race, although it's obviously uh, critically important here, but uh, I was struck by some of the uh, uh, comments during the pu open public hearing and, uh, you know, some of the, um, the, the things that we've written about uh, earlier, uh, that uh, there's some concern that sort of if you do sort of kind of push out a vaccine with just say this, you know, 50% uh, um, uh, efficacy uh, target uh, and uh, um, it sort of, you know, works half the time or sort of, you know, maybe it, uh, um, maybe it doesn't, does that actually sort of kind of, you know, resolve the pandemic and sort of kind of if, uh, um, you know, you've got a mediocre vaccine out there and everyone thinks they can sort of kind of, uh, uh, throw away their masks and, uh, um, you know, uh, go to mask gatherings inside uh, now that uh, it may not actually sort of, uh, you know, uh, blunt the, uh, the spread of, uh, of uh, coronavirus. Right. And then you combine that with the sort of vaccine hesitancy crowd and another group of people, maybe that's just going to feel like they to get the better vaccine or get the vaccine once there's better data and then you start to wonder how useful it's going to be for some of these companies to be sort of the first in line so yeah sarah you 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 wrote up ended up writing about some of the the questions about the the committee had about the placebo control uh, issues once the eua is actually you know given out on on one of these Right. And um, I mean, the committee seemed to agree with FDA, which is that once you get an EUA, they still need to continue placebo controlled trials to get a full approval and get the additional data that would be needed for that. Um, but neither FDA or the committee really had um, any sort of advice up for companies on how to do that. Um, in fact, FDA very clearly said uh, we we don't really know how to how to do it, and um, are just sort of hoping that other parts of the government or companies can come up with creative ways. And ahead of the advisory committee, um, a number of companies and bio sort of submitted comments to the docket saying 
we're worried about this. We think you need to come up with kind of like creative designs or statistical solutions that we can use to get the data you want because it may not be feasible or ethical and so forth to keep people on placebo control. So that seems like it's going to be a big problem moving forward um, because FDA has said companies will have to have sort of a plan for this in their EUA submissions. And it, it was an interesting little, I mean, it wasn't like an argument like where they were yelling at each other, but there there was a definitely a disagreement with between what FDA was tell, was saying and what some of the committee members thought was feasible. Because, I mean, the FDA was talking about, you know, it's like, we, we see no ethical issues with keeping people on placebo after a vaccine's available, you know, and there was a lot of discussion about, you know, can informed consent, you know, be, you know, be, uh, you know, maintained and can it be done so that that can be maintained. And the, and the committee didn't seem to think that that was kind of the, the, the either realistic or, or, or even feasible going forward. It seems pretty clear from what the industry representative from Merck said and what others said at the meeting that companies are going to have to update informed consent, most likely, and make people aware of, you know, an EUA and make them aware potentially that they might have access to a vaccine if they dropped out of the trial and were found out they were on placebo arm. So, um it doesn't seem like companies can just kind of ignore um, the situation in their informed consent. The question is, do people sort of voluntarily, are they willing to stick with the trial, either just sort of out of altruism, out of maybe just realizing that they're not really going to qualify under the EUA or the supply is low? Um, the, the Merck representative did say that companies have experience doing placebo-controlled trials of vaccines once there's approved products for a certain area. So it'd be interesting to hear more from Merck as to how they've done that in the past in terms of recruitment and retention. Yeah, Merck is a little bit behind uh, sort of kind of the uh, the first wave in terms of getting its coronavirus uh, uh, potential vaccines uh, um, into studies. So it'll be, uh, um, you know, they will... Uh, um, Feel this uh, acutely, I guess, if, if there are sort kind of a, you know, EUA uh, products or even perhaps uh, fully approved products by the time that uh, um, Merck uh, is able to start uh, its uh, uh, large-scale studies. Um, I was struck by uh, just how sort kind of routine this uh, this fight uh, uh, feels. Sort kind of that uh, you know, industry thinks that uh, the agency is being overly prescriptive, and sort kind of FDA, uh, you know, is sticking to an important principle, but not sort kind of uh, you know, offering sort of uh, um, you know a, a clear uh, a clear path that everyone can follow, and uh, it's almost refreshing to have this kind of uh, kind of fight after we uh, saw the political drama of sort of even releasing the guidance, in which sort of, kind of it, it felt like you know sort of released sort of uh, publicly, uh, um, industry was very much behind the idea of releasing this guidance, and now that it's out, they have their uh, routine uh, um, uh, disagreements with the agency about sort of, kind of how to frame. Uh, how to frame studies. So that's sort of, obviously sort of this is a, uh, um, uh, you know, massively important uh, drug development uh, um, issue and sort of kind of not, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, not run of the mill uh, um, in that sense, but it's sort of kind of, it, uh, um, it's back to usual in terms of sort of kind of how, uh, 
uh, how agency and industry are sort of uh, interacting on this issue, at least uh, um, from that perspective. I was also struck by um, one FDA official commented that the vaccine sponsors who are now in phase three, they have no obligation to give an EUA vaccine to those who uh, receive placebo in their trials. They have not promised to do this and, and they're not required to do this. And um, that sort of flies in the face of what the National Academy of Medicine has said, as Sarah pointed out in her uh, excellent story this morning. Uh, the National Academy really prioritized those placebo patients in the clinical trials to receive a vaccine, a, a vaccine once it is authorized. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to, you know, maintaining FDA wants the trials maintained with, you know, as with a placebo control as long as possible, because there's no other easy way to get the kind of data that they're going to need. And <clears throat> they, they expect to go, all of these candidates to go to full BLA approval. And you're not going to be able to do that and, you know, and hit hit the marks that they need to hit to get to a full BLA if you just, uh, uh, you know, stop the trial at the issuance of an EUA. There was one interesting point in the um, advisory committee where one of the panel advisory committee members talked about how there seems to be some assumption the initial EUA might be for healthcare workers and her assumption was well there's probably only very few healthcare workers in the study so you don't have to worry about them you know being qualified to get the vaccine under EUA so people will stay under placebo and it that seems like a strange assumption because FDA is not going to want to clear something for a population which hasn't been rather significantly studied in the trial. I don't think we're going to get an EUA that doesn't match up with the populations in the trial to some degree. That doesn't mean that every population that was studied in the trial is going to be eligible for the initial EUA, but the EUA has to match up somewhat significantly with the data companies are going to get. Or, I mean, what was the point of conducting the trial in the first place? Well, yeah, yeah that, I mean, would, and you couldn't, that would also suggest FDA is is clearing a vaccine based upon an individual's occupation, which <laughs> right, I don't which, think they've ever done that for a product. Well, right. I mean, how, FDA, how would you do? How would you FDA, do that with age? I mean, age is a is the bit is a huge you know huge question mark with with these vaccines. You have healthcare workers that are fill the gamut, you know, from eighteen all the way up to over you know older than sixty five. I mean, I, I don't know how you could do that. Right, perhaps aid like the CDC's advisory committee on immunization practices, which will have a decent say in kind of who gets the vaccines. Perhaps they can deal with that complicated aspect of it. But um, and FDA was sort of asked about this at the hearing and said they don't really think they could limit an indication in that way to sort of a segment of society and, you know, in that kind of nature unless there was some sort of actual data indicating, you know, a specific risk benefit calculus for that population. But um, yeah, that seemed, would certainly be sort of very unusual and unprecedented. And of course, all of this leads into the, the, the big elephant in the room, which is vaccine confidence uh, and mainly the problems in the U.S., which was another issue that was discussed during this meeting. Interestingly, there seems to be a belief now that some people will refuse the early vaccines that are approved because they believe a better one is coming later. Uh, this 
phenomenon known as patient warehousing. It uh, could threaten uptake as the government pushes to vaccinate as many as possible as quickly as possible. And, uh, you know, the, the it, I, and I didn't when I, I didn't even start or I didn't even realize it until I started looking back at, at the schedule of, of the phase three trials. But there is an obvious example here. I mean, phase, Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines are the first in line and are expected to be the first to get their EUAs. But they require two shots a few weeks apart. And we heard during the meeting the logistical challenge they're going to have, making sure not only everyone gets their two shots, they get the two shots of the same product that they're supposed to get, which is going to involve the patients getting a card that they have to bring back several weeks later, which I'm not sure how well that's going to go. Um, but the one of the vaccines that's next in line is from J&J, &J, and that's only one shot. So they're really you realistically could get a lot of people that say i'm not i don't want the first one i'm going to wait for the single shot vaccine in a, in a couple in a couple months which is supposed to be due in the first quarter so i mean do you all think this could realistically hinder vaccination efforts i mean would you wait for one shot if you could you know if they said you can have the two shot vaccine now i don't think i would uh, um and I, uh, I, I think the uh, um, uh, that concern maybe we're kind of overstating the uh, the case unless there's uh, um, uh, you know some real uh, efficacy uh, uh, shown in the J and J or another single shot uh, case. I think uh, um, you know obviously sort of kind of the um, the government uh, um, uh, commentators at the uh, um, uh, at the advisory committee you know seem to think it was a, a real concern uh, based on what they've been. Uh, um, you know, seeing and hearing out there, but uh, my sense from uh, um, you know at least the uh, um, uh, you know on the uh, on the drug side um, is the patient warehousing. It's for kind of you know highly uh, um, informed patients who sort kind of uh, you know what the pipeline uh, uh, looks like and sort kind of uh, um, you know make a decision with their physician on that. And I think uh, um, those folks are probably sort of uh, um, less concerned about sort kind of uh, two shots if they feel like they can sort of get some um, protection sort kind of well in advance of a, a single shot. But, uh, um, you know, uh, um, again, that's just sort kind of my uh, um, my opinion. I'm uh, I'm struck by uh, um, how there does seem to be this sort of kind of third category of hesitancy now. There's sort of, kind of uh, people that uh, don't like vaccines because of, you know, their vaccines. There are people that uh, are worried about COVID vaccines because of Trump. And now there are people that are... Uh, um, cautious of uh, COVID vaccines because they uh, they see something even better on the horizon. But uh, um, how about uh, you, Sarah and uh, Sue? Would you uh, um, go uh, go twice, or do you uh, do you want to wait for a single shot? <laughs> I, I mean, I I don't think for for me personally, the needing to go back for a second shot would be a, a deal breaker. Um, I guess to me, it's hard to think about all this though in such a theoretical way I think the actual data we get from these trials is going to be a big factor of the public reacts. You know, if um, you get a product that's 60% effective as some of these are aiming for and a really good safety profile and we see it prevents, you know, both maybe severe disease and mild disease, or maybe even, I don't know if they'll have any data on like transmission and so forth. I mean, I, I just think to me, and now I'm not sure the general public is going to look at, at the nitty gritty information, but it's just hard for me to 
make assumptions about how people react until we see, you know, what t kind of quality product we're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at this as sort of not a one shot versus a two shot deal, because I'm not even sure if you were to schedule an appointment to get your vaccination that you would know in advance which one you're getting after if there's two or three out there, kind of like the flu vaccine, you don't know which one you're going to be getting in advance. But I see this more as a as a hesitancy issue. I can see people not wanting to rush out right away and get their vaccination because they're they're nervous, they're concerned, and they're going to wait and see, you know, oh, well, this neighbor down the street, they got there, they were, got the vaccine, and they didn't have any problems, or my great aunt got the vaccine, and well, she was a little sick afterwards. So, uh, you know, I think they're going to take that into consideration in deciding when they should go get their immunization, assuming there is widespread availability of vaccine at that point. I, I'm still kind of on the, you know, I still think about it in kind of a logistical way. I mean, if, you know, I mean, if, if I go, you know, and like you said, I make my appointment, they, they don't tell me ahead of time and I get there and they say, you know, okay, we're giving you the two shot one. I'm just going to be like, oh, you know, because if, you know, let's face it, it's, you know, significant portion of your day to go and get this taken care of. And not like I wouldn't want to do that. And, but if, if I had the, if I had the choice and, you know, I'm doing pretty good with the social distancing and the wearing of masks and, you know, in trying to stay out of crowds and out of, you know, in, you know, being, trying to be not indoors for long periods of time and so forth. I mean, maybe I say, you know, it's like, Hey, let, you know, I'm, I'm not in a high risk job. Maybe I, maybe I do wait for the one shot one to come out just so I can do it once and get it over with and not worry about it anymore. I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe. But I mean, thinking about everything you said, though, Derek, um, based on what I've seen from like CDC and the National Academy so far, you're probably not even going to have this option, right? You're oh, yeah. you're in group three or four in yeah, the yeah. government's mind of yeah. when you're going to probably be eligible to get a vaccine based on the supply. So I think, you know, initially they're envisioning for the first quantities of vaccine, perhaps going to, you know, like seniors and kind of large congregate settings or mm -hmm. again, healthcare workers working in those types of facilities or in hospitals and so forth. So I'm not sure as many people are going to have a choice <laughs> initially as gonna, we think. And this again, yeah. you, it's just going to make it all that more annoying when like a year from now I go and get my vaccine and they say, you got to come back for round number two. You know, because that happened to be what they had that week. You know, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it'll things will evolve differently, and <clears throat> that you know, a bunch of the candidates that are one shot will just will will come on, and they'll be, and they'll be, you know, they'll end up being a lot better, and they'll be the ones that people prefer, and they'll just they'll be able to ramp up production. I mean, I don't know. I mean, your guess is as good as mine about what happens, you know, from here. But uh, you know, it's, it's just gonna. Yeah, I think there's gonna be people who, you know. Seriously, think about it, even when they're when it's their turn. I, I don't know. So final issue I wanted to get at on the on the Verpac meeting was, um, you know, we have been talking about this for months. Stakeholders have been anticipating this meeting for 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 months and months because it was going to be the, one of the first times that outside people got to talk about in a public setting the FDA's decisions on vaccine development. So. 
did the agency get what they wanted out of this meeting? And did the public get what they wanted out of this meeting? Don't all jump at once. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'd be curious to know, like, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine, like, an average person just sort of curious about vaccine development watched any good chunk of this meeting. It's certainly not designed for somebody that's not kind of familiar with this to really watch it and appreciate it. Um, in terms of how I've seen some of, like, the mainstream media news coverage of it, I mean, it seems like you could get a sense, though, that the meeting did lead to transparency and clear, um, thoughtful criticism and critiques of FDA's standards that may impact how the vaccine process um, and approval process works moving forward. So perhaps there's some reassurance there from the public, you know, that people are thinking about this very critically and carefully and not just making rush decisions. So I think that probably is a good thing. Although, again, I, I just think like the um, it'll be a lot more meaningful and impactful when a committee is actually dealing with actual applications at hand. In terms of FDA, um, I think they got, I mean, a decent amount of advice. The question is, um, do they almost get more than they bargained for? Because there was a decent <laughs> amount of, you know, critique of the guidance. And what do they do now? Because companies have already been sort of working off of this guidance, and many of them can't really change course at this point. Yeah, it seems like the committee was committee was fairly uh, definitive where FDA would prefer that they weren't uh, in terms of sort of kind of uh, you know asking for uh, more safety follow up uh, data and then sort of kind of you know didn't have uh, strong opinions where FDA was really sort of hoping for some insight in terms of sort of kind of what uh, what to do with uh, um, you know trial uh, continuation after an EUA and uh, maintaining placebo control or some other means of uh, getting valid data um, after that point. So. Uh, um, you know, had uh, um, uh, you know, had the definitiveness of uh, um, the the advisors for kind of ex uh, expressions been flipped, I think FDA would have been, would have been very satisfied. But uh, as it stands now, there's uh, doesn't seem like a whole lot uh, that the agency is going to be able to uh, to use in terms of uh, practical advice from uh, from the committee. But as uh, um, Sarah was saying, I think it was a uh, um, you know a great uh, step forward in terms of kind of showing that they can have this. Uh, this big meeting, the technology worked very well. There were, just, you know, there were very few uh, um, uh, bobbles, so uh, it does set up a good uh, uh, template for uh, handling a uh, um, a committee meeting about an actual product. It also gave FDA a pretty prominent stage for highlighting and emphasizing that its decision making is going to be science based, and also that to sort of downplay. The word rushed. I think they said somebody used the term expedited, but not rushed. So I think this was a very public way in which they were trying to get their message across, you know, beyond, say, the New England Journal of Medicine articles and that sort of thing. Yeah. And in, in that sense, they were kind of you're like, yeah, it was, you know, it was technical. It was dry. At times it was boring. But I mean, I think it still was designed in 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 large part, especially at the beginning, to, you know, like you said, Sue. I mean, Mary Gruber was the one who said that, and she said that in her introduction that you know the expedited but not rushed uh, comment, and um, you know, I mean, it was designed for people who hadn't been following it, you know, day by day like we do, 
you know, they, they, I mean, they had a whole, they had a whole presentation on, on the, you know, the, the symptomatology of, of coronavirus uh, disease. And, and they talked about what bar, what the government's doing to fund the, you know, the various candidates and, and so on and so forth. I mean, it, it, if, if, yeah, if you were, you know, if you had, if you were off work that day and had nothing better to do, you probably didn't want to watch this, <laughs> but you know, if you were legitimately, if you, if you didn't, um, you know, if like, if you, if, if you were, if you, if you weren't following this every day and you try, you were trying to catch up, I mean, this was a good way for somebody who's not a scientist to kind of catch up on what's going on, especially if you have to, if you know, you're going to be in a group that may have to pick, may have to decide whether or not they're going to get vaccinated, you know, relatively quickly here. So, <clears throat> Finally, this week, in a piece of non-COVID news, we're going to look at the ongoing saga of McKenna, the preterm birth drug. Matt, the company that now owns the drug, decided to fight the FDA's decision to withdraw its accelerated approval. Uh, yeah, this is, um, uh, well, I guess the the idea that they would fight it isn't necessarily a uh, um, surprise, given how uh, important uh, um, the product is to them, uh, you know, it's over sort of 40% of their uh, um, their revenue right now. So uh, um, the idea that it would sort of uh, completely leave the market, uh, um, you know, is obviously concerning from a bottom line perspective. And, uh, um, you know, they've expressed a lot of concern and have a lot of patient groups sort of weighing in about sort of kind of the, the concern uh, um, for potential uh, patients as well. Um, it's also unusual because, uh, you know, accelerated approval withdrawals don't happen all that often. Uh, um, so it's uh, noteworthy there. Um, one of the things uh, that I was uh, struck with uh, with the story uh, um, was for kind of the, in some ways, sort of the parallel between the uh, the COVID news and uh, um, and this. And I feel like we're kind of all uh, news is COVID news uh, um, these days. <laughs> but uh, you know, if you think about sort of kind of FDA's, um, you know, competing desires when it sort of does come an accelerated approval, is they you know they see this preliminary data that sort of looks very promising. They want to get the uh, the product out there to uh, um, to patients. Obviously, in the mechanic case, there was just sort of this uh, whole issue of sort of kind of the the compounded product uh, having already been available and concerns about uh, um, you know uh, quality and safety of that uh, um, of that uh, compounded product. So, uh, um, but uh, you know, if you think about sort of the the EUAs with uh, um, the the COVID vaccine, they're talking about sort of kind of once that EUA is out there, how do you keep gathering the data? To make sure that you were right about your either EUA or your accelerated approval, and it seems like uh, McKenna sort of kind of uh, fell victim to this idea that uh, um, you really you really need to have your confirmatory trial well underway before you kind of you start commercial marketing of the uh, um, of the product under uh, one of these uh, expedited mechanisms because they the confirmatory trial they did just didn't uh, didn't work out and they ended up sort of kind of having enrollment problems and sort of kind of uh, you know, ended up using a different population, and maybe that was the issue. That's were kind of as opposed to the um, the initial study, but uh, um, it does highlight this tension of sort of kind of uh, you know, if you do uh, um, you know, even sort of kind of uh, you know, based on very sort of kind of valid science and sort of kind of being uh, um, you know uh, uh, not rushing, but sort of but uh, just sort of kind of trying to move as fast as possible, you still can sort of kind of end up with a uh, a situation in which you're uh, you're left with a dilemma of sort of kind of well, it didn't. Uh, it didn't kind of uh, meet its final endpoints, and so what do you do now? 
I, I admit I am a little surprised they are fighting it. Um, I take your point about the large chunk of revenue that McKenna accounts for um, in their uh, sales. However, that their sales of McKenna, the revenue from McKenna has been going down and there are several generic versions of the drug on the market. So they're fighting to keep a drug on the market <laughs> as well as its generic competition. Um, I think they think they can really leverage a the concerns about compounded products, although it seems like the compounded products would probably disappear if if McKenna were taken off the market, because that's sort of what FDA has indicated. But I also think they can leverage the patient community concerns as well as the concerns of, of some of the professional groups like the Society for Maternal Fetal Health and uh, ACOG who sort of are still kind of standing by their guidelines in terms of, you know, you may want to consider McKenna uh, for this use. I, I just questioned how much, whether AMOG appreciates how much work and resources are involved in fighting an accelerated approval withdrawal. Um, I covered the Avastin withdrawal back in 2010-2011, uh, and that was an 11-month saga, and that was just for uh, one indication. But uh, I can't even imagine how much money Genentech spent trying to fight that, and in the end, they were unsuccessful. Yeah, the uh, um, uh, the sponsor certainly has enough confidence to sort of kind of to appeal, but uh, not enough confidence to do do, do uh, another trial. Uh, um, and uh, um, you know, obviously, as we're talking about sort of kind of having the product on the market, sort of complicates the other trial. But uh, you know, I feel that they've probably sort of kind of uh, run the numbers in terms of sort of kind of how much uh, um, uh, you know sort of kind of uh, uh, you know uh, legal and consulting fees they'll have to uh, um, they'll have to uh, put out to sort of kind of to uh, stretch this out and. Uh, um, you know, even if they are unsuccessful, and I suspect they will be unsuccessful, that uh, um, they'll get many more months of uh, of uh, of uh, marketing out of it, and uh, you know that's uh, that's a lot of revenue for them. Uh, not to, not to sort of dismiss the genuine concerns about sort of kind of patients' access to uh, you know this preterm birth drug, to which there's no other alternative uh, um, to. So uh, um, uh, there's the you know that's their, I'm, I'm sure a, a legitimate concern as well. Just just to be. To be clear, I mean the the process here involves it, it's that it's not just an actual physical hearing where they they argue back and forth. There's also briefings, uh, you know, ahead of time, and and there's all kind of, there's other decisions that are made in advance of that. Is that right? Right. So um, first thing is um, AMOG has to submit its sort of. It's supporting material right now and its request for a hearing. And then it's up to the FDA commissioner whether or not to grant a hearing. Um, and then if if a decision is to grant a hearing, then that's that whole process takes months and there's lots of briefing back and forth and designation of witnesses and all of that sort of thing. At least that's how it happened in Avastin. Avastin is the only one that has gone through this process so far. But it strikes me that, you know, I think the commissioner probably will grant their request for a hearing given the, the patient community outcry about this, but it's probably also the last thing that 
and FDA overwhelmed by COVID work needs at this point, because it's not, we're not just talking about the review division that would be involved in this. We're talking about the commissioner's office and the office of new um, office of new drugs, their leadership and the general counsel's office. There's a lot of different aspects of FDA that would be involved in any sort of challenge here. And I think that they've probably got a lot of other issues on their plate right now with the pandemic. Yeah, no, no doubt. We're, you know, again, something else that, uh, you know, just an, another, another piece of work in their in their cadre of growing cadre of of uh, issues to to follow that we'll be following. So, well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes or SoundCloud by searching for Pharma Intelligence Podcasts. And if you're so inclined, please feel free to give us a review. Listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast, I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.